Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled, a podcast based on the lecture series of the same name. It's where we break down concepts from cutting edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Michelle Matus. Today, we're going to talk about decision making as it relates to wildfires. But before we dive into that doom and gloom, I've got a question for you. Okay, hit me. What do you think about cookies? Cookies? Yeah, what are your thoughts on cookies? Well, they're delicious for starters, and I guess they're probably not so good for me. Right. I'm guessing that's how most people feel about cookies. So the fact that they're delicious is one value you hold about cookies, right? Yeah. The other is that they're not good for you. So if you're presented with a warm chocolate chip cookie right now, what would you do? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I... I know that they're not good for me, but I guess I would probably eat the cookie. Like any sane person would. Yeah. So you just had to make a choice between two values you hold. Now, if I were a researcher, I would tell you that your belief that cookies are delicious outranks your belief that they're bad for you. And that says something about your values around cookies. I'm not sure if I like what that says about me, but I'm guessing that's not why we're here today. No, it's not. If you break that down and look at the choices somebody's presented with and their decisions, you can really learn a lot about a person. And that's the same for communities. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Decision making as it relates to wildfires. Now, if you live in the American West, you might have noticed a shift in fire season. No longer a few months in the summer, the fire season has become longer and more intense, and many in the fire community are reporting conditions they've never experienced before. All of us across the West are wondering if we're the next to be hit with a devastating fire as we saw in recent years in Paradise, Santa Rosa, and other towns. Communities have certainly been affected by the changing fire activity, but how has that shift impacted the training and response of those who are on the front lines? Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk about how firefighters analyze risk and make decisions in the face of fires that have become not only more frequent, but more extreme as well. The topic was discussed earlier this year at the Science Distilled Lecture Series produced by the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute, both in Reno, Nevada. Doctors Tamara Wall and Linda Walsh spoke at the event and afterwards with KUNR about what their research can teach us about risk, values, and decision-making. Okay, so it's no surprise. Firefighters work in high-stress, high-stakes environments where they're weighing threats and making choices that put their lives on the line. They're also taking into consideration everything else that's in the path of a blaze. That means people, property, animals, and even water and other environmental resources. Dr. Tamara Wall is a researcher at the Desert Research Institute, and Dr. Linda Walsh is a professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno. They've been working together on something called the Risk Decisions Journaling Project, Basically, they're trying to understand how firefighters characterize and manage risk in those complex and often chaotic environments. During their recent lecture, Wall and Walsh presented their ongoing research. And like every good research project, it all started with a question that Wall heard from a collaborator. He said, I keep hearing this statement from firefighters. I've never seen, or some firefighters, right? I've never seen fire do that before. And that was really concerning to him uh, because usually after... Generally, you know, managers don't really like it when uh, firefighters get surprised because that usually means that things aren't going as planned and maybe bad things happened or bad things almost happened. And so he was like, so what does this mean? Does this mean that they're being surprised? Should they have been surprised? Are things really changing? Is fire behavior getting worse? What's going on? Or if they shouldn't have been surprised, why were they surprised? And what's going on there? That question spurred Wall to start a project called Fire Stories 
which involved collecting over 200 stories from wildland firefighters about their perceptions of unpredictable and extreme fire behavior. Wall's research found, among other things, that training didn't play a significant role in the decisions firefighters were making on the ground, and that firefighters were less likely to follow directions and orders the more unpredictable a fire became. Which makes sense, right? So when everything's going along as planned, you would expect that people would be following directions and orders. The interesting thing is when we asked people how relevant training was to the story that they, that they were relating and how they were behaving, very few people said training was extremely significant. So the data from the Fire Stories project produced more questions like, is fire itself acting differently? To get to the bottom of that question, Wall interviewed 40 fire behavior experts whose job it is to explain why fires do what they do. She shared several of the narratives that firefighters reported on their experiences of what they categorized as extreme or unpredictable. Here's what the experts had to say. We gave them all those stories and we said, hey, tell us what you think about this. And they all came back and they said, I don't know why these guys thought that was inexplicable or erratic. I can totally tell you why fire did that. <laughs> they, were very, they were like, oh, I don't understand this. Oh, what are these guys thinking about? They need more training in fire behavior. That was really what they said. Training is important, but we'll get back to that. First, we need to understand that if fire behavior isn't changing, what's making them burn hotter, faster, and longer? Well, Michelle, you didn't think we were going to have a whole episode on fire without talking about cheatgrass and climate change, did you? For an on-the-ground look, I spoke with Anthony Sagari, a wildland firefighter and captain with the Nevada Division of Forestry. We no longer have fire seasons, and our fire seasons typically were three to five months. Now they're five to eight months, and sometimes year-round. If you don't have the moisture on the ground, if there's not snow on the ground or heavy moisture on the ground, it's fire season. Historically, locally here on the Sierra Front, our most destructive fires have been in what we would typically call the winter months. Um, so that's, that's accurate. That's there. What another big change that I see is our fuel modeling. The grass and brush that's on the ground is, is more prominent, right? Typically, we say if there is going to be a big wet winter, we're going to have a big heavy fire season. And that's due to growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, this invasive species, this, this problem child that we have of cheatgrass, and that's the carrier of our fire. Um, it's, it runs so fast through grass that we, we can't catch it. We're seeing that more and more every year. It's a different ball of wax now. You know, it's hot and dry and... It stays that way for a long time until we get the moisture on the ground. Fire is behaving exactly how experts would expect it to, but it's becoming more intense due to our changing climate and environment. So what exactly are these extreme conditions anyway? We'll let Wall explain. Fire size is increasing. It is much more common now to have fires over 100,000 acres uh, than it ever was pre-2000, pre kind of the early aughts. We're seeing more uh, fire activity at night. Historically, firefighters would do, uh, wildland firefighters would do a lot of uh, suppression at night, um, you know, because fire was laying down, it, temperatures were cooler, RH had recovered. And so there were some opportunities to kind of get ahead of a fire at night. Um, now, fire activity is, is often very active at night, um, and it's also created more hazardous situations. And so firefighters are no longer necessarily as comfortable as they once were uh, doing nighttime suppression. With the increased tempo of fires and a lack of rest period at night, firefighters have less time to assess and make decisions in the field. 
For fire managers, that's a problem. Wall wanted to figure out how firefighters on the ground were managing risks in rapidly changing situations. I asked Wall how she defines risk. What do we mean when we say risk? Uh, basically, how do they think of risk? You know, you can't take on no risk or you would never get the job done. But there's times where there's so much risk, you really have to minimize what you may choose to do. And so understanding how firefighters perceive risk is really important. What factors do they rely on to um, make those decisions? And understanding that perhaps if a good outcome is where nobody got hurt, that says something about how people perceive risk. So my goal with the Risk Decisions Project is that we actually get a really good handle on how do they, what are the factors that they use and the decisions that they make, and how are they balancing that risk versus being effective in a way that helps the fire management uh, community um, characterize risk and understand how risk is perceived and um, mitigated you know, in these decisions and use that then to guide training into the future, where, again, we may have often firefighters may have these somewhat narrow windows of time to realize that the situation is changing very rapidly. Wall needed to figure out what factors went into a firefighter's decision on the ground and what that could mean for the firefighting community as a whole. Dr. Wall began to work with Dr. Linda Walsh, a professor of English and a rhetorician at the University of Nevada, Reno. A red what? A rhetorician. 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 Right. Now, if you're like us, you probably have only a vague understanding of what a rhetorician even does. To better understand it, let's take a trip to ancient Greece with our linguistic tour guide, Dr. Walsh. Um, so, uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, what rhetoric is, right? So, I'm a rhetorician. What is that? Um, so, rhetoric originated about 500 BC in Greece. Uh, in Athens, and what it was was a social technology that allowed the Greeks to go from ten deems, or tribes, that were fighting and killing each other all the time, to democracy. So that transition from deems to democracy was enabled by rhetoric, which was a way of working out differences amongst themselves without killing each other. And so um, that's what rhetoric is. It's an art of uh, collaborative decision-making in the face of cascading uncertainty and conflict. And you can see why it makes such a perfect match for firefighting. Because uh, firefighting is also having to make um, collaborative decisions in the face of uh, cascading uncertainty and really uh, extreme risk. Let's take a time out here because what Walsh said is super important. Firefighters must make collaborative decisions in the face of cascading uncertainty. So the journaling project's goal, using a mobile app, was to have firefighters tell a story about a decision they made in the field during a fire. The app created prompts for firefighters to self-report if the choice they made in the story was influenced by experience, training, or situational awareness. It also asked what was at threat in the story. Walsh views risk as an opportunity in two ways. It's an opening for people to get together, talk, make a decision, and change an outcome. It's also an opportunity to listen and find out what motivates a community, what makes them act. So I said before, I was joking that I don't know anything about fire. It's not a joke, actually, I don't know anything about fire. But what I do know how to do is listen. I know how to listen carefully to communities of firefighters when they tell stories about the decisions they make and what's important to them. So the project captured a range of decisions from people up and down the chain of command, as well as firefighters with differing years of experience. They've collected 54 stories so far. But what are they doing with them? So here's how I worked with these stories. 
First, I looked at the firefighter stories, and I looked for inflection points. This is the weighing, the on the one hand, on the other hand. As the Greeks would say, omende, right? On the one hand, on the other hand. So um, in, like in, in this quote here, um, the yet caught my attention. And now I'm looking for values, conflicting values on each side of that, right? So um, this story said, uh, this decision was difficult due to the need to get the team adequate rest during a very high tempo fire year, yet much more efficient to keep the team in place for a few more days. So they're weighing some conflicting values, which are on the one hand, firefighters need adequate rest. On the other hand, efficiency in operations is really important. And they're weighing these against each other in this decision. So the last step is I look at the decision they made, and now I know for that decision how those values are ranked with respect to each other, which one won and which one lost in that competition. And the decision was to go ahead and extend that incident management team past their, their rest date. So in this instance, for this decision, the efficiency of operations won out over the need for the firefighters to rest. Okay, so that's just a little filter. So I took all of the filters from the 54 stories um, and then I reconciled them, the wins and losses, to see which values sort of consistently won and which values sort of consistently lost. So let's hear the winners and losers. Keep in mind the sample size wasn't large enough to be conclusive, but some meaningful data was extracted. Of the 54 stories, if the decision dealt with firefighter safety or protection of structures, it usually won out. The stories also indicated that policies and procedures were a lower priority against the developing situation on the ground. And one of the more surprising findings was that firefighter rest ranked lowest in the community attitudes around fire decisions. And that's a worrying result. Yeah, you're right. Walsh had some takeaways to share about that. It's something she's watching. So moving forward, what do you think you're going to see? I mean, I know that's kind of a Oh, sure. No, I, that's fine. I'm happy to speculate. Rhetoricians <laughs> are happy to speculate. I'm always, I mean, used to talking to scientists who are like, right. well, well we, you we can't can make a judgment. Yeah. Um, well, I can tell you that the trends I've seen that I think will bear out in the larger data. And like I said, I think we will see um, a continued prioritization of on-the-ground situations over policies and procedures. I have the feeling that is going to be robust going forward just because of the kind of work firefighters have to do. I, I'm wondering about this uh, the sort of low status of the need to rest. That will be interesting. I have a suspicion that there's a certain amount of toughness to this culture that might lead uh, women and men both in this culture to maybe devalue their own rest in order and also a sense of urgency. So not just a sense of toughness, but a sense of urgency, right? I mean, People's lives are at stake. People's houses are at stake. So I think rest may be viewed as something expendable. I hope not, but that is something I'm a little worried that, it, that will continue to be um, borne out by the data set. For wildland firefighters on the ground, they're gearing up for what promises to be another potentially catastrophic fire season. For that, we turn back to Andrew Sagiri. You know, when you see a winter like we've had, does that make you a little nervous? Yeah, big time. I'll tell you what, you can historically look at it. 2005 here in Reno, we had a huge winter, right? 2006 was, it was the fire siege of 06. Enormous fire season, big, heavy, wet winter. Then you see a winter like 2009 where it didn't do much. And in 2010, we barely had any fire on the landscape here on the Sierra front. That's accurate. Another big change that we see is the amount of the urban interface that we're seeing now, right? Urban sprawl into the wildlands is up by 187.7%. And that's an enormous change 
And that's an enormous number. So there's a lot of things going on. Ultimately, what the researchers hope to do is examine the way firefighters are trained and ask if that needs to be evaluated in the face of climate change. So maybe the training needs to be less focused on policies and procedures and rules to follow in order. And maybe the training needs to be focused on helping firefighters do better what they already do well, which is use their embodied knowledge, their instincts, and their observations on the ground to make robust decisions in line with their community values. As the next fire season approaches, Tamara Wall and Linda Walsh are preparing to collect more stories to build on their initial research. And for the firefighters and communities at risk, we must remain vigilant. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Science Distilled. I hope you'll join us for our next episode where we're going out there, and I mean really far out there, as we explore what life might look like on other planets and whether we can even call it life. You can listen to past episodes and learn more about Science Distilled, the podcast, and the lecture series at KUNR.org. Special thanks to the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute. The show was produced and edited by the team at KUNR Public Radio. If you have any comments or questions, let us know. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Paul Boger. And I'm Michelle Matus.